0: Good morning. Welcome to another episode of the end time blog podcast. I'm Elizabeth Prada. Today I'm looking into something I discovered from history that has application for today. But it takes a while to explain. So this podcast will be a little longer than my usual usual ones. It's titled the historical fact of the quote cult of true womanhood, unquote, and the cult is alive and well today. Well, what we have is somebody who posted something on a topic that she often posts on suffragism, and that means it's the advocacy of the extension of suffrage as to women women who advocated for the right to vote back in the 1800s before women could vote were called suffragettes. And you see this from some people who have largish um, to large social media platforms advocating for women not being able to vote today. Now back in the 1800s, there were three big moral social justice movements. And suffragism arose in the early 1800s as the temperance movement gained widespread momentum. The temperance movement was a moral movement urging societal change that people, mostly men, abstain from drinking alcohol. Now, another moral movement overlapping this in the early decades was suffrage women should be able to vote, and also the third one, abolition of slavery. Women were very effective campaigners in the temperance movement, and realizing this, they soon began to campaign for the right to vote, and they were effective in this also. They held parades and protests and pickets. There's a picture on the blog of suffragists parading down Fifth Avenue in 1917, displaying placards containing the signatures of a million New York women demanding the vote. It's from the New York Times photo archives. Now all this forward and bold female hussy type activity was jarring to many people. And soon, of course, an anti-suffrage movement sprang up. These were women and men who opposed the movement to give women the right to vote. Now the anti-suffragists methods, the ones who were opposed to women's voting, wanted to get their position across but they didn't want to do it in such a bold and unladylike way as the pro-vote crowd. So from the Encyclopedia of Oklahoma History and Culture, we read, they campaigned at county fairs by distributing bulletins while offering advice on womanly subjects such as first aid. Considered the heaven home and mother crowd, they held teas, fundraising balls and luncheons at hotels and women's colleges as opposed to the noisy parading and picketing and public speaking promoted by suffragists. The antis, A-N-T-I or anti, wearing their emblem of pink or red roses, campaigned quietly by circulating anti-suffrage literature in the state legislative gallery and quote from Encyclopedia of Oklahoma History and Culture. As an aside, this reminds me exactly of Phyllis Schlafly's method she used to defeat the Equal Rights Amendment in the 1970s. If you watch Hulu's series Mrs. America, you will see. Well, the anti-suffrage movement was the birth of the cult of true womanhood. Historians acknowledge that it was based on four moral virtues of piety purity domesticity and submissiveness this was a real cult and a real movement and historically a fact that can be traced and seen from the mid to late 1800s through the early 1900s. the attributes of a true woman we read from barbara welter her article the cult of true womanhood the attributes of true womanhood by which a woman judged herself and was judged by her husband her neighbors and society could be divided into four cardinal virtues piety purity submissiveness and domesticity put them all together and they spelled mother daughter sister wife woman without them those virtues No matter whether there was fame or achievement or wealth, all was ashes with them. She was promised happiness and power. That's a quote from Barbara Welter, who wrote The Cult of True Womanhood, 1820 to 1860. Well. From oklahomahistory.org, we read, quote, anti-suffrage members allege that the right to vote would not solve the problems of women society. and society. They opposed suffrage primarily because they believed in the cult of true womanhood. And in the separate spheres of the home, the apolitical association served to educate and legitimize activism within the traditional female domain. Now, that's the end of the quote from OklahomaHistory.org, but you notice that those these antis were opposed to women's suffrage and scandalized by women protesting and marching and speechifying. The antis were hypocritical in their approach. If they truly embodied godly womanhood, they would have been content to remain at home and leave the anti-suffrage campaigning to the husband. But they didn't. The cult of true womanhood was and is a real thing. The movement that arose in opposition to women's suffrage in the latter decades of the 1800s and early 1900s was a moral one, and it was named. It was called the cult of true womanhood, also known as the cult of domesticity and parts of its ideology included what i've already mentioned the separate sphere concept that women dwelled in one sphere the home and men dwelled in another sphere the world if this is all beginning to seem familiar today with a certain movement headed by certain females on social media it's because it is familiar it's the same except repackaged as the trad wife movement, trad short for traditional. Now, activism is activism and hypocrisy is hypocrisy. The godly womanhood cultists back in the 1800s were activists, just as much as the bolder pro-suffrage activists were activists. Their methods differed, but they were all activists. The true women simply applied a veneer of virtue over their activities and claimed the higher moral ground. Remember, the hallmark of the cult of true womanhood was and is today piety, purity, submissiveness, and domesticity. The cult of true womanhood also had at its center an unwieldy quandary. Believers in this cult said Women are the moral arbiter of the home, not only capable, but commanded to set standards for Christian godly living and to be a model of it. Yet at the same time, it was said women lacked the moral intelligence to make proper moral decisions when they vote. You see this from an anti-suffrage tract from Ohio that says, It is a mistake to presume that all women will vote right. On moral issues, experience proves that many of the worst ills of social life are due to the influence of women of low ideals, of right or wrong, or of degrading morals. Well, hmm, that's the end of that quote. So, history, is really more nuanced than our memories allow. I mean, an ideal, these women say, is the wife is in the home, never straying outside it, presiding over a serene domestic excellence. Now, that is a moral ideal, but not a biblical reality. The 1950s picture of pre feminism life that they, these ladies like to present didn't exist ever. I mean, if you want pre-feminism life, go back to Genesis 2 before the fall. The ideal presented by the godly womanhood cultists is a figment. Their version of womanhood was hardly ever the case then, and it's hardly ever the case now. We read from Jean Boydston, A really good article, quote, Meanwhile, industrialization forced free women in northern working class households to labor for cash. As street vendors, tavern keepers, boarding house operators, paid domestic servants, garment workers and a variety of other occupations. Young women from New England farms provided the nation's first factory labor force in the textile mills of Lowell Mass beginning in 1814. These were called mill girls. A surprising number of middle-class families also depended on the paid labor of wives, many of whom wrote or edited. End quote from Jean Boydston. Who could adhere to these impossible and largely imaginary eras of domestic perfection? Well, it was mostly white upper-class women who promote this, promoted this then and promote this now. Let's read a quote from Thought Company on the cult of domesticity. Although all women were expected to abide by the standards of true womanhood, in reality, it was predominantly white Protestant upper-class women who did so. Due to societal prejudices of the period, black women, working women, immigrants, and those lower on the socioeconomic ladder were excluded from the chance to ever be paragons of domestic virtue. In The Ladies' Token, a book, um, Published in 1848, we read, a wife should occupy herself only with domestic affairs. Wait till your husband confides to you those of a high importance and do not give your advice until he asks for it. If he is abusive, never retort. Those publications and many others like it pushed this ideal, this moral ideal of the domestic woman. And history is complicated and our minds do want to dispense with some of the more gritty realities. We read from Jean Boydston's um, article, um, The Cult of True Womanhood. The wives' work was vital to household economic survival. Only among the very wealthiest families were husband's income large enough to purchase everything a family needed to survive. In the poorest of families, wives scavenged wharves and alleys for abandoned or unguarded fuel, food, fuel, and clothing. Even in middling families, a wife's labor in keeping a garden, making clothes, economic, economizing with food, even producing some of the family's furnishings like ottomans, pillows, and mattresses, or equipment like soap, enabled her household to maintain a comfortable standard of living on incomes that were otherwise insufficient." Well, if the middle or lower class wife's activities seem familiar that I just read, It's because they were recounted as the Proverbs 31 wife's day of full work. Martin Luther's wife, Katie von Bora, also spent hours upon hours a day doing these same activities so the household could survive economically. I'll read a little bit here about Katie von Bora and what her day was like. Quote, Katharina immediately took on the task of managing the monastery's vast holdings. She bred and sold cattle and ran a brewery to provide for their family, the numerous students who boarded with them and her husband's visitors. Times of epidemics, she operated a hospital with nurses working alongside them. Luther called her the boss of Zulsdorf after the farm they owned and the morning star of Wittenberg for her habit of rising at 4 a.m. She thus assisted her husband with running their estate and even directed renovations when necessary. Well, were the Proverbs 31 wife or Katharina von Bora not godly women or true women? Now, a caveat, the Bible does call for women to be at home, primarily oriented toward the home. The word of God advocates for that, but how this plays out varies. And I repeat is not, is not the singular narrow view that the historical cult of true womanhood promoted in the 1800s. And it's not, I repeat, not the narrow view of trad wives today. You know, it's not even the biblical view. Why? Because Proverbs 31 woman and Katie Von Bora were gospel centered, not morality centered. And that is the difference between a cult or a trad wife and a biblical wife. These godly women ministered as whole women in true service to the king not in service to four tradwife virtues of piety purity submissiveness and domesticity that is the difference biblical versus moral biblical examples were lydia ran a business selling purple susanna was wealthy enough to support jesus ministry and travel with him priscilla made tents with her husband Rachel's job was a shepherdess. The midwives in Egypt worked. Funeral mourners were a job. Mark five thirty-eight, and Shira was a builder, and so on and so on. Now these four virtues of piety, purity, submissiveness, and domesticity—if they're beginning to seem familiar to you—this is the exact cult that Laurie Alexander, the transformed wife of godly womanhood and H. Pearl Davis are part of, and it's what they promote relentlessly. It's simply been repackaged. I've mentioned earlier that the anti-suffragettes formed a moral movement or a movement based on virtues. Now granted, these morals were lifted from the Bible and they are excellent virtues for women to have. But once you unhitch these virtues from the gospel, they turn into serpents and slither away from the context and truth to become external legalistic demands instead of internal virtues enhancing a gospel-oriented life. As with anything related to history, we we always remember things more fondly than they actually were. Our historical memories might be sepia-tinged, flower-laden, soft memories, but the reality of womanhood at the time of the cult of true womanhood was born was hardly that. Quote from Jean Boydston, To the extent that white women from more prosperous households succeeded in embodying, quote, true womanhood in their own lives, They inevitably did so at the expense of other women whose labor produced so many of the commodities and services of this perfectly domestic household. And that was the final paradox of the 19th century true womanhood. As I round up to a close here, as godly women, we want to raise up younger women to enjoy marriage as a true godly woman, But we do so by teaching the whole woman all the doctrines of the Bible so that she will be stable and assured of her position in life as a child of the king. Ministering to him out of love and gratitude for his sacrifice on the cross. We do not extract preferred virtues from the Bible, turn them into a cult and place these burdensome legalistic demands on women as moralistic ideals, separate from the word of God as a movement of its own. We don't. The trad wife movement might have a germ of a good idea at the center, but like Jesus warned, woe to anyone who substitutes pietism for holiness and moralistic externals for internal realities. There is nothing new under the sun. The cult of true womanhood existed then. And it exists now. Be warned that as Shakespeare said, everything that glitters is not gold. Well, this has been another episode of the end time blog podcast. I'm Elizabeth Prada. Thank you for listening, and I hope you have a wonderful day.